So just a quick message before we go into the podcast. Resourcing Tomorrow is Europe's largest and most in-depth mining conference dedicated to the global sustainability goals and is coming to London this November. The Minds and Money event will be held at the Business Design Centre on the 29th of November to the 1st of December. Companies like Rio Tinto, Barrack, Madden and Anglo-American are attending alongside 2,000 other decision makers, mining leaders, policymakers, investors, innovators and educators from over 75 countries around the world for three days of learning, deal-making and paralleled networking. It gives you a chance to see some of the majors and juniors uh, what they're forecasting heading into next year, and you'll be able to catch up with like-minded professionals in the industry. So don't delay and book your tickets now at resourcingtomorrow.com and use the code DIGDEEP10 in capital letters to receive 10% off your pass. These details will be posted in the show notes accompanying this podcast. Now onto this episode. Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Greg, Greg Cochran, who's the MD of Eurora Energy Metals, an Australian-owned company focused on the exploration and development of Eurora Energy Metals project in Oregon, uh, the US. And the project hosts a defined uranium resource and its uh, prospects for lithium as well. Uh, Greg is regarded as an international executive with over 30 years' experience in general management and in senior commercial technical roles. With a background in mine engineering, he's operated as a managing director and CEO at that level for the last 15 years, working on projects in Africa, Australia, and Asia in a broad spectrum of minerals, including uranium, potash, and other industrial minerals and base metals. And he's here today to tell us more about Eura Energy Metals. Um, Greg is also going to be speaking at the upcoming uh, Mines Money event in London, uh, which is at the end of November. Um, so to be sure to obviously reach out to him in person uh, if you're attending the event. There's further information uh, below or accompanying this uh, podcast in the show notes. So um, uh, please obviously get get your tickets early. Um, and obviously if you're there, feel free to introduce, uh, introduce yourself to Greg. Um, obviously he's going to tell us a little bit more about uh, what he's doing, um, but obviously feel free to reach out to him. So that's welcome, Greg, to the podcast. How are you doing, Greg? Good day, uh, Rob. Uh, great, thanks. And, and thank you for uh, inviting me to participate in the podcast. Really looking forward to telling you the story about what we're up to at Aurora. Yeah, and I appreciate, obviously, your time as well. So as we always start these off, um, why don't you just give us a, an overview of uh, a background about yourself, about your career, obviously, I just gave a quick highlight there, mm-hmm. uh, but if you just go in a little bit more depth about um, about yourself as a person. So, and I, and I, what I gather from obviously the audience that they like this this uh, this introduction because they get to know the guest. Um, mm. So yeah, just yeah. wondering if you can uh, tell us a little yeah. bit about your career. Yeah. Okay. No. Fine. I, I, by the way, I jokingly refer to myself as a, as a mongrel because I'm a, a Zambian-born, ex-South African, now Australian. 
uh, lived also in the in the UK as well, so pretty much a global citizen, I guess. Um, you know, and and also joking, you refer to myself as a lapsed mining engineer because the further you go up, I found in the chain, the less technical you become and the more focused you are on on, on broader management and leadership, etc. So, uh, but for me, that's always been the exciting part of of the business. You know, I I do love scratching below the surface and getting into the technical stuff. But but also like to very importantly set the tone of the organization I'm leading um, and then also the strategy. And a large part of my career was business development. And so there's always one eye on on opportunities beyond the existing portfolio as well. And I've had a lot of fun doing that. In fact, one of the analysts I was talking to recently um, reminded me because um, I ran the due diligence for the Eurasia transaction when I was with Uranium One back in 2007. Um, and he said to me, you know, that is still the largest Uranium transaction ever done. And I like paused for a moment and I, is that true? And then I, I thought, thought back to the timing and the quantum, it was over three, 3.2 or 3.8, I can't remember, Canadian billion dollars. And so, yeah, he, he was right. Um, you know, it was a different time then, and, and who knows what the future holds when it comes to uranium. We do believe there will be a lot of uh, consolidation because bigger companies generally do it better and are able to deliver. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that the smaller companies can't get there as well. I'm being distracted into already in, into the minutiae of the industry. Uh, coming back to me, as I said, a mining engineer by background, and funny, there has been there have been these times in the past where almost just coincidentally I've been drawn into uranium um, as early as when I was a student in South Africa, where the company I was with developed the first dedicated underground uranium mine, um, which later closed, which was a salutary lesson for me in terms of the economics of mining in general and uranium in particular. Um, and then later on, a colleague of mine in that same company, 10, 12 years later, somewhat distraught, told me about the fact that the company had sold Langer Heinrich, and I'd never heard of Langer Heinrich. And I said, what is that? And he said, well, and, you know, he, he almost, you know, like a, a fatherly figure said to me, almost with his, his pointing a finger at me, you know, mark my words, sunny boy, almost, um, nucleus time will come. And Langer will be one of the first of the new generation of uranium mines. And that's exactly what happened, you know? So I never forgot those lessons, and and I guess that's the story of my life. Is you, as you get older and your career progresses, you want to make sure that you learn those lessons from the past, in terms of the good and the bad, and you acknowledge, you know, sometimes we don't get it right, and then sometimes you you know you just hit it out of the park, and and so you know that's what makes this life and this career in mining industry that much more exciting. So um, you joined Aurora. Lesson uh, a year ago, um, and you're uh, leading the company through the ASX listing process, um, and to advance obviously the US uranium lithium project. Um, just wanted to just tell us a little bit about the company, and also uh, what attracted you to to your. Mm. Sure, I, I think first of all, when when I left uh, my previous role, I um, you know. When I stepped away after Deep Yellow from uranium in uh, late 2016, I, I felt, you know, having nurtured that company and kept the lights on and done credible work for five and a half, six years, um, I, I, I was kind of in desperate need of a sabbatical from uranium because 
things you just were not turning around. So, you know, left. And when I left Reward Minerals uh, last year, I thought, hang on a minute. And I was already, I had two years ago already been investing in uranium, thinking actually there is a revival underway. And, and you know, so I, I'm happily, I, I, you know, have a couple of 10 baggers locked away. So that's fantastic. Uh, so the timing was right. But there's nothing better than actually then getting directly involved in something that you can actually believe in rather than just on an investment basis. And um, so I was actively looking in the space um, when I was approached by um, you know, the people from Mitchell River Group who, who stand behind us. Uh, and they're a very smart group of people uh, with similar values to me. So, you know, really nice group of people who have been there and done that before when it comes to project de delivery. So, you know, they, they don't just talk their game and mine the market. They actually have on their track record that they've delivered mines in multiple jurisdictions in different commodities. And that really appealed to me. So they said to me, look, you know, you've got this uranium profile and background. Um, here's something different. Uranium plus lithium. Are you interested? And, you know, when reflecting on the structural change that's going on in the global economy about how we produce energy today and into the future, this is a compelling message. It, it was just, you know, you're kidding me, a well-defined uranium resource with lithium on top, where do I sign up? You know, so it ticked all those boxes. And, and uh, you know, so I, I had numerous other opportunities, but this was the one that, that I, I decided to focus on. And, um, you know, we, we, when I came on board in December last year, um, we fast-tracked the listing, recognizing that things in the global markets can change very rapidly. And we've seen that happen, partially as a result to, I guess, the back end of COVID and, and the post-COVID world, but also clearly Russia's invasion of Ukraine has you know, fundamentally impacted the markets and in particular the energy markets. Not everything that's happening in energy markets, though, can be laid at the blame of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But certainly there is you know, fallout from that that has had its imp imp impact. Uh, you know, I argue that a lot of the respects is poor judgment, poor political leadership. You know, how can you make decisions around energy when when energy security of supply doesn't enter the debate is a really curious thing. You know, I studied after my mining, I studied mineral economics and, you know, we did the economics of energy resources and a fundamental part of that is energy security. You know, so that ticked all the boxes for me joining up with this group and 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 pushing forward to list this company. And yeah, you know, it's we haven't disappointed. We've hit the ground running. Um, you know, we've moved forward where I'm learning a new environment because I haven't operated in the US and that's exciting for me. And, you know, we're now just about to start our first drilling campaign. But that's not the only thing because, you know, we've really nailed a whole host of, of really important, uh, um, you know, deliverables in the first five odd months of our listing, our listing life. Mm -hmm. uh, you, um, you mentioned your uh, uranium deposit is well-defined. Um, but in terms of scale, uh, where does it sit relative to other uranium uh, deposits? Mm. Oh, yeah. that's a really good question because um, often uh, we get sidetracked by the monsters out there, and there are some massive uranium deposits. You know, people often, you know, like, oh, you know, Australia has one third or kind of an exact number of 
global uranium resources. Well, actually, yeah, but that's ninety-five percent tied up in one deposit. And that's Olympic Dam, you know, which is not a uranium mine. It's a copper gold miner with a uranium byproduct and a very cost-effective <laughs> uranium byproduct, I might add. So, you know, when you look at in the global scale of things and you look at the you know, cigar lakes of this world, high, high-grade, um, small tonnage, very high-grade, lots of uranium, that's not what we're about and it's not what the Aurora uranium deposit is about. But what I hasten to add, so in the global scheme of things, a in round figures, a 40 million pound deposit may not be seen to be particularly large. However, in the US context, that is a significant, in fact, it's one of the largest single uranium deposits in the US. And often I find, and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation. I find, um, I see you know, uranium companies listed, whether in Australia or in Canada or in the US, you know, quoting pounds on the balance sheet but those pounds are made up of a disparate bunch of little pods of uranium um, that owe their existence to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And by the way, Aurora was discovered in the 1970s, <laughs> so it's also been around for a long time. Um, and they're in disparate states, et cetera. And I, I'm, I'm somewhat critical of those claims because, you know, Anything under 20 million pounds in a conventional resource will be very difficult to deliver in an environmentally responsible way. Now, in the US, for example, at peak production of uranium, which was around about 1980, 40, 44, something like that, million pounds per annum was their peak production. A lot of been incentivized from the early days of the 50s and the 60s. Uh, there was something like 350 little uranium mines. Dare I say it, rats and mice. There were substantial, large, credible operations, but there were these tiny little operations. And what that led to is a massive environmental liability. Um, it's legacy issues that sit across the US. New Mexico comes to mind immediately, you know, and the Navajo uh, and, and, and the consequences that they've suffered from that sort of approach to mining. And that will never and can never be allowed to happen again. And that's why 40 million pounds is what we're really comfortable with, because that's the scale that you know you could enter production, you can produce for 10 to 15 years, one and a half to two million pounds per annum comfortably. And that's where the utilities in the US that are desperate for domestic supply of uranium want to get on board and they want to get involved because they hang on, this is somebody that can produce environmentally sustainable uh, you know, non-legacy forming uranium mining, and it's the domestic supply chain. So it really is a, in that, that context that this is a very significant deposit in terms of scale in the US. Um, obviously, you mentioned there's uh, lithium, uh, lithium um, at the obviously yeah. at the site. Um, <clears throat> sorry, um, does that pose some metallurgical challenges? having obviously both uranium and lithium to, to mine. Yeah, you, you know, this it was one of the, the first things that crossed my mind because I, you know, I hadn't got across the geology at the time when I first got involved. Um, but as it turns out, they are geologically discrete. And so you could elect to strip off the lithium and just mine the uranium. Or you could mine the lithium and leave the uranium behind for a later date. Or you could mine them both, but they would need to be treated by 
two different plants. So the only shared infrastructure would be the transportation mechanism from the mining operation to the plant. And I've got some great ideas as far as that's concerned, which we can perhaps touch on later on, uh, because you know I don't envisage a trucking operation. This will be a low CO2 emissions in low environmental footprint operation, but that's a slightly different topic. So um, what it means is you, know, you would go in and you may strip the lithium overburden, lithium containing overburden from the uranium, which in aerial extent is rather small compared to the overall area of the lithium hosting sediments. And you could stockpile that lithium hosted lake bed sediments and then mine the uranium. And all you want to do is you want to make sure that you do not sterilize other parts of the lithium deposit. And, and so the conceptual mine design that my predecessors at Aurora, which some of the same people that are still here today, had when they acquired the deposit from Uranium One back in 2010, this had to change because you know what made most sense at the time was a small plant at the mine site. We've changed all that so that we don't sterilize lithium. And in fact, we just recently bought a, um, a, a, a private piece of land just inside Nevada, which then speaks to this, this, this mine of the future idea that we have around conveying all you know, across the border into, into Nevada, um, where it's the ideal location environmentally to host both a plant and a tailings facility. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, you would say so you have the, 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 um, the ability to stockpile the lithium whilst mining the uranium, or if lithium all of a sudden gets so big and it just absolutely dominates the, the atmosphere of the discussion, we can push the button on the lithium and park the uranium. That's not our intent. But that may ultimately be an outcome, you know. So the just in terms of scale, you know, when I talk scale, let's talk air extent. The uranium deposit itself is about 1,600 meters long by about 300, 350 meters wide, whereas the extent of the lithium is, you know, well over three and a half kilometers by five kilometers. So much larger area that we need to cover. And obviously, that we need to explore to test those, you know, the, the, those lithium hosting sediments. Uh, you just uh, announced imminently the commencement of your first exploration uh, drilling campaign mm. since last, uh, since obviously listing in May. Um, mm. What's the objective of the campaign, um, and what can the market look forward to with um, obviously potential results? Yeah, yeah, it's quite funny because um, you know we rightly so we we highlighted in the release some of the results that um, my predecessors at the company got with their thirty-two hole diamond drill program in two thousand eleven, and and when you look at those results, um, you know I think any uranium company and and literally any even Cameco would welcome those results as being really significant and attractive. Uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, shallow, wide intersections, um, you know, well over 25, 30, 40, 70 meters at, you know, 40, 400, 500, 600. I think there was even one intersection at uh, 1,000 ppm. And, and generally, these are all close to surface, you know, 20, 30, 40 meters deep. Um, so there were a couple of deep ones, that admittedly, but a lot of them, you know, are significant high-grade intersections at reasonable depths. And then you add to that 
But hang on a minute, but there's potentially payable lithium sitting in the shallow sediments above that as well. So, you know, it's it's this is the first time that the company's consciously gone ahead and said, okay, we're exploring both for lithium and uranium. Whereas the 2011 program was entirely focused on the uranium, and the lithium was a consequence of that, where they went back. In fact, that was, I think, our first release when just after we listed was we um, we retrieved the stored core and we assayed the lithium in those sediments and, and also got them, you know, encouraging results. They're in the same ballpark as our next door neighbor and fellow Aussie Jundali, which is encouraging because they have the second largest lithium deposit in, in, in the US. You know, so well, if, if we can replicate their success, we'd be very happy on the lithium side as well. So we're looking to extend potentially the northern western hemis- uh, uh, extension of the existing uranium deposit, whilst doing a, a wider program to test for the deeper, thicker lithium sediments that we believe are in existence to the the northeastern part of of, of the the claim block, um, where there is a a down throw fault, um, and and the sediments are up to two hundred meters deep, which once again ref- reflect those of both Jindali as well as the Thacker Pass lithium deposit, which is America's largest, which is twenty five k's south of us. So there's lots of you know news flow to come around. Uh, both uranium and lithium intersections, uh, and and obviously the assays. You know, we we're also permitting uh, more drilling. Um, these things do take time in Oregon, and it's a two-step process. You deal first with the feds in the Bureau of Land Management, and then you go to the state-based regulator. And so, um, you know, we we're already moving forward with the next phase of drilling. This this was a pretty small drilling program just to make sure that we understood the requirements of the regulators and that. And now we do, we're in a better position for the next tranche of, of applications and for, for more permits. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've worked around the world in Australia, Asia, Africa. What would you say the main differences is in working in the US and the mining legislation? You'd probably just cover a little bit there. What what are the main differences that you that you see and you've experienced in terms of the way they, I suppose they way they mine and uh, I suppose the legislation as well. And obviously yeah. we've got audience from all around, all around the world, so be interested yep. to hear your thoughts. Makes makes sense. Yes. Look, um, you know, I think there are some similarities in dealing in Australia and the US, and I don't want to 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 dumb down or simplify things too much. Um, but you know, both being first world jurisdictions, and and I've you know permitted a uranium mine in South Australia at the federal, with Commonwealth level and the state level, uh, a sensitive potash project in WA at the state level and at the Commonwealth level. You know, so I, I'm attuned and 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 you know used to dealing with regulatory bodies all over the world, as well as you know Namibia and. Algeria and Mozambique and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, et cetera, et cetera. So <laughs> feed around. Um, I, I love the can-do attitude of the US. You know, there is a, an absolute belief that we can pull this off. And, and you see that with, you know, all the entrepreneurs that, that the US historically has bred over the last, you know, 50, 100, 120, 120 years. So, so that gives me confidence in dealing that environment. Um, 
In addition to that, I mentioned that Nevada um, property purchase, and and people have asked, you know, why not process in Oregon? Um, so we're in a, a, a somewhat hilly part of the world. It's not this, these are not mountains. You know, they, they you know, gently undulating hills. Um, but the reality is that that location Nevada is ideal, but also because, like Australia, the U.S. has different regulatory bodies on a state by state basis. We know that Nevada, depending on the year you select, is one, two, or three in the Fraser Institute index of best places, best mining jurisdictions. And you know, so we thought, well, environmentally, that's a piece of land that ticks the box. But also, here's a state that knows and understands mining intimately. Um, and so to to actually permit uh, the processing plant in Nevada will make our lives not easy, but easier. You know, so so that's why we went down that path. So, you know, we're really attracted by that first world jurisdiction, you know, the rule of law. Um, you know, things aren't going to get confiscated, taken away from you. And, and you know, there's a litany of that, obviously, in, in, in Africa that, that I've, you know, witnessed firsthand. Um, so, yeah, we, we're really looking forward and, and, and love operating in, in that environment. And, of course, also, given, you know, we're operating sort of in Nevada and in Oregon, we're tapping into that knowledge base of mining and environmental consultants, et cetera. That that operate throughout that region that that makes our lives easier as well. Um, I suppose let's talk about the status of, of obviously of nuclear power. Um, what's what's happening within the space and obviously in the US? Um, and could your project supply, um, a, a, I suppose, a substantial amount of uranium to the sector within the US? Yeah. Look, I you know. At last, uh, the the nuclear sector in the U.S. is getting the the recognition it deserves. Um, you know, for so long, so much money has been thrown at renewables and subsidised. Um, you know, and, and to the disadvantage of nuclear, you know, that they've actively, you know, disadvantaged their their largest, most reliable supply. Of clean energy is disappointing, and it's not just the U.S. The, you know, most of the world has done that, um, you know, and and the Germans, you know, beyond the pale in terms of what they've done. Four hundred and fifty billion euros on renewables and coal mining and gas, you know, whilst turning off perfectly good nuclear reactors, uh, and once again forgetting about that whole energy security issue. Um, so I'm encouraged by recent developments where. It's not as if there are formal subsidies to nuclear, but they're recognizing nuclear energy's benefits as we recognize renewables' benefits. And so, you know, there is some price protection for those power stations, and that makes absolute sense. And so now that's bringing more confidence to the market. We've also got bipartisan support for the first time in over 40 years. On nuclear, between you know, incumbent Democrats and the Republicans, that are saying and recognizing we need this, um, and in fact, you know, so much so that uh, you know, plants' of lives are being extended. As recently was the the, the one in, in 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 of all places in California, <laughs> which is great to see, uh, and 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 Gottly in I'm forgetting Virginia, I think, is is being loaded as we speak and is about to start generating power. So the first 
new nuclear power station in two and a half decades, I think, or something in the US that's being loaded. And it's it's its brother or sister, depending on the right terminology, will follow in 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 the in a few years or 18 months' time. So the first of the two new nuclear power reactors to get up and running. And that's that's just you know great news for power generation, clean energy power generation in the US. They still remain by far and away the largest producer of electricity from nuclear. Um, you know, their demand would be in the order of 40 to 45 million pounds per annum. Uh, they've dropped from about 100 reactors to, uh, to about 90 odd reactors, but still producing pretty much almost the same amount as the 100 reactors were because they were smaller reactors. And, and every year they, they inch up incrementally and uprate these things. So the engineering is fantastic. And they're going for life extensions as well. So that's really important. And then you've got this, you know, uh, strategic um, uh, uranium reserve fund, uh, one and a half billion dollars, which has been established to encourage uh, and and source uh, domestic supply of uranium. And then there's the massive. Uh, so the six billion was the, the the number that was mentioned, I think, at the time of this price support for nuclear power. And then there's the hundreds of billions of dollars going into, um, you know, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which is targeting, you know, the critical mineral space. And, and I know technically in the US, uranium is no longer regarded as, as critical. That's just terminology. It is critical, clearly, <laughs> for 20, you know, half of their, sorry, half of their clean energy production. So um, we're very well positioned and really have the tailwinds behind us as far as Lithium and uranium is concerned, and we sincerely hope that we will one day be a significant longer-term supplier to both the nuclear fleet, but also to you know battery uh, producers and EVs in the US as well. Um, obviously, we talked about uranium uh, within the US market. What about lithium? Um, and do you see a euro supplying domestic uh, US market with? Sufficient amount of uh, lithium. Yeah, so this form of of lithium. So you know, you know, we're somewhat biased in WA because we we wear this spodumene hat, and so we're all comfortable with the fact that we export a five and a half percent concentrate, um, and think that that's a good idea. Of course, you know, I'm not I'm not knocking it. It, it. it it's it's a sound business, you know, and and you look at the success of WA lithium industries, fantastic. But it's not the only way to do things, as we know. Brian is out there as well, and the third leg of the lithium story for future security supply is lithium hosted in similar clay hosted lake bed sediments like we have, um, and so this geological region that, that that we are located in, uh, known as the McDermott Caldera, uh, you know, has the potential to be the largest source of lithium in the world, let alone in North America. And has it been done before? Not on a large scale, but there has been decades worth of investment and research into producing lithium from clay hosting uh, clay, clay beds. And so you've got in Sonoma in Mexico, you've got Thacker Pass uh, just down the road from us with Lithium Americas waiting for final approvals. Um, and you've got Jindalee. Uh, and there are a number of others out there as well. You know, so for us, we're not first movers. You know, we are followers and we only stand to learn from those other players. 
But those other players, I mean, Gang Feng acquired the Sonoma deposit in, in, in Mexico. So, you know, that gives it a huge tick of approval, clearly, because they're the world's largest. Um, and, and, and Live in America is one of the largest companies with significant offtakes for, for its product, uh, you know, ultimately when Thacker Pass comes into production. So I, I fundamentally see us as part of that story. And it's not just a Tesla story. People conveniently, and I, I acknowledge we do this too. <laughs> you know, we've got Tesla factory in Reno, you know, on our map. And, and sure, you know, that's cool to show. And, and, you know, we often fly into Reno and have meetings with our consultants before driving up uh, to McDermott. And, you know, so pretty much we drive past the Tesla factory every time we're in the US. And as I said, that is cool. But, you know, the product that you produce is not a five and a half percent concentrate. Um, you know, it's carbonate or ultimately hydroxide. And obviously, it's early stages for us to decide where we will be. Um, you know, I, I noticed, for example, that Jindali announced that they're even looking at, at, at LFP, which is fascinating to me, you know, because that's something we hadn't considered. So, you know, acknowledgement to, to Jindali and, and, and their lateral thinking. And, and that's a very, as we know, very high value product, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 a ton. And that's something that can travel enormous distances. And so it's not, oh, we've got to chase Tesla because you've got all these gigafactories on the East Coast that are springing up everywhere, you know, LG and all these other players, uh, you know, Ford, VW, Honda, they're all there. And so we definitely see it as part of the US domestic chain, but who we ultimately supply, obviously the jury will remain out for quite a long time still to come. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, the Biden administration has passed a number of acts uh, that seem, seem to obviously be supportive um, of minerals um, you're obviously aiming to produce. So do you think you're able to sort of take advantage of the legislation that's been obviously um, put out there? Yeah, look, I, I, I think, you know, having um, had the benefit of, uh, you know, for example, our, our own Australian, um, you know, Research grants, et cetera. And I, I've, I've, you know, tapped into those credibly as well. And, and they facilitated some amazing work, uh, metallurgical research work and everything. So I'm a huge believer that cautiously invested taxpayer money actually does make sense. Um, you know, sometimes they bet too big and they get it wrong. And I could point to four or five recent investments in WA, but I won't mention any names and I won't mention the mineral um, that are fraught with danger and, and are going to cost taxpayers and have already cost taxpayers inordinate amounts of money. But, you know, this is something that is driving the US because they realize they are so far behind the eight ball when it comes to this. It's like, wow, you know, we have been asleep at the wheel thinking she'd be right, mate. We'll always be able to get our stuff, in inverted commas, from elsewhere. And now it's, and I saw somebody's comment the other day, it's no longer NIMBY, not in my backyard, it's now BIMBY. It's beautiful in my backyard. Now, there is still an environmental backlash and community, uh, you know, are, are concerned about mining on their back doorstep, but they recognize the absolute need to bring that domestic production home. And so you have companies like Ioneer that have done a fantastic job with their Rhylite Ridge uh, living boron project. And, you know, they already are in the process with due diligence being done on their project, which could attract huge funding, state funding, to get that, that project up and running. 
as is Thacker Pass. You know, Thacker Pass, more than half of that will be funded by government incentives. Um, and Piedmont Lithium just the other day just you know got a, a I can't remember the exact number but a, a significant grant grant for a facility um, you know so there are things that we need to learn about how we go about tapping into into those opportunities um, but absolutely I do believe that we will be part of that um, you know and, and will benefit and our shareholders ultimately will also benefit as will the country from from those grants and from that research. Yeah, I've got a couple more questions. Um, you mentioned obviously uh, trucking, logistics, um, obviously of uh, uranium and lithium. Um, you mentioned it earlier. What were your thoughts around that? I wonder if you can just provide yeah. a little bit more information because I take it there was there was something there that you, you, yeah. you wanted to get out and you're going to wait till a bit later on. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming back to that. I, I appreciate picking up on that because uh, I, I'm also genuinely excited about this. I, um, you know, throughout my career, I've been known as somebody who, who does think outside the box and uh, and and done some interesting stuff. And and this in particular, I'm I'm really enthusiastic about. So you know, when we started thinking about um, you know a, an ideal location for a plant away from the, the deposit itself. It forces you to think about logistics and logistics solutions. And we know as a fact that, you know, Oregon is well over 50% hydro and has fairly deep penetration of renewables as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a clean energy supply system in Oregon. And it just so happens that we have a major power line coming down from the, the Harney uh, co-op, uh, electricity co-op, um, pretty much on our doorstep. And, uh, you know, so we are able to tap into hydro generated clean electricity that wait for this number. <laughs> this will make, you know, bring many people, I think, in, in, in Australian mining to tears. Six and a half US cents per kilowatt hour is the average price of, of to industrial consumers of electricity this year to date. So that's a current. That's not going back five years. That's current. And last year it averaged. Around about that number, you know. So, so number one, it's cost effective. Number two, hey, it's clean. It's zero emissions. So that then prompts you to think about, all right, well, who needs to truck? You know, who needs to build roads? You just select a suitable conveying mechanism, be it a sophisticated conveyor belt or a pipeline, and you run the ore like that across the twelve k's straight into Nevada. And so your local community is impacted by that transportation source. Um, it just operates quietly in the background and does its thing. And they can quite happily, as can wildlife, et cetera, you know, operate in that environment. And the only thing is the mine site development and off, off mine site, the plant site development, which is, has a, you know, a sealed road and a power line going over the top of it. You know, so existing infrastructure. And, you know, so you have this. A number of consulting companies talk about this mine of the future concept where, you know, it's minimal trucking. You may end up trucking your, if there is waste, you know, trucking that a K or so to where you, 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 you've got your, your, your waste dump. But apart from that, it's input crusher into, onto a conveyor or into a pipeline and across into the plant. And there you go. And and that is so much better than you know trucking miles and miles and miles. You know your your energy efficiency, your your carbon footprint, everything, just you know 
you know, you can then realistically say, how do we get to zero, to to you know, a zero carbon emissions footprint? And it's it it you know, just by you know, just good fortune of you know Oregon's hydroelectricity position, we can tap into that, and and you know, so there's you know a huge benefit of being in Oregon just for that reason alone. You know, where people say, oh, Oregon's not a mining state. Well, it's got a lot of things going for it, and that's one of the examples. And lastly, um, just want to even give us a um, outlook of what's the the next six to nine months looking like for uh, Aurora, and also just any final thoughts you want to give a you want to share with our audience um, around uranium, around lithium, around Aurora, whatever you uh, whatever you want to, your final thoughts may be. Yeah. All right. No, thanks. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, I think I know we're going to be pretty busy for the next, uh, you know, right through to the end of next year and beyond. Um, and, and this drilling campaign, given that it's, it's RC only, is, is the first of, of many holes to be drilled, um, which will be both RC and diamond drill ultimately. And diamond, um, in order to generate core in the first instance for, for, um, I would say final stages of metallurgical test work before a pre-feasibility study. So the, the, the milestones and, and the news flow to look for would be the minute we start drilling next week is, you know, obviously, um, when it comes to uranium, we'd be using a geophysical tool or gamma tool, it's called gamma to, to get a, an e-reading of the uranium. Uh, but then ultimately that needs to be backed up by assays. Assay waiting time in Nevada is, is typically at the moment around two months, if you're lucky, maybe slightly longer. So, you know, we'll be consistently announcing progress on the drilling program, progress with um, uh, our um, ongoing permitting um, for the next phases of metallurgical test work, as well as uh, conceiving what's called a plan of operations, which is an exploration plan of operations, which enables us to up the ante with regards to the amount of disturbance we allow to create on at the project site. At the moment, without that, we're limited to a maximum of five acres of disturbance. Uh, so that's a very important piece of work that takes well over a year to, to, to finish. And we're looking to try and commence this year. And that in itself will be noteworthy and newsworthy, but then you know, doing the surveys, et cetera, throughout the year before delivering that report to the BLMs at some time, maybe at the end of next year. And then out of that also flows um, uh, metallurgical test work and those results feeding into a feasibility study. The lithium will obviously lag that. So with lithium, it's around cytotests. tests. It's understanding the mineralogy of the clay mineral that the lithium is hosted in and then, and then starting the metallurgical test work program. Uh, you know, so plenty of things to keep us busy um, and, and keep uh, the market informed. Look, I think from both a nuclear and uranium point, point of view, uh, you know, I, I only see tailwinds, um, you know, because of this recognition in Europe and in the US and, and in, in many other countries. And, 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 you know, people were quick to point out the amount of coal China burns, but they less quick to point out you know, their commitment to renewables and their commitment to nuclear. It's huge, you know, and so, you know, that's really important from the overall uranium market perspective. But it's not just about those countries. You know, you look at the UAE, which started 
just over 12 years ago from scratch and has already commissioned its third reactor with the fourth on the way. That's a magnificent success story for what can be achieved in nuclear. And, you know, the, 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 the naysayers are the people that blindly and blindly say it costs too much. Well, that's because they don't differentiate or understand the difference between capital and operating costs and, you know, the fact that you need to replace turbines and solar panels every 15 or 20 years. Um, they complain about the waste when they never mention where the world's EVs, EV batteries, solar panels and, and, and wind turbines, where's that waste going? You know, all that is taken account for in the nuclear chain. We can't produce an ounce or, or, or you know, a, a milliwatt of electricity without every part of the chain being spoken for, including looking after the waste. So, which is a small volumetric, a small problem. I mean, I was reading something the other day, all the nuclear spent fuel in the US, 50 years, five, you know, in fact, 70 years, 1950s, would fill a football stadium 10 meters deep. So that's the volumetric challenge. And then people are, oh, but it's there for 40,000 years. Well, actually, that's also not a credible criticism because the radioactivity drops an exp exponential rate. And so it's perfectly handleable very quickly. And we have all those technical solutions. So it's unfortunate that the sector has been blindsided by these naysayers who, you know, have had their day in the sun, dare I say it. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have said it because don't get me wrong, renewables absolutely have, have their, their, their role to play. So that this is not an anti-renewable anti statement at all, but it's just that we need everything. We need everything to be success in future and to address this, what I said at the beginning, uh, before we went online, this, uh, or at right at the start, this structural change in how we do energy for the future and for the planet, you know. So really excited about that acknowledgement, saddened that it's taken this long to get there and, and you know, but it's great. And, and similarly with Livian, you know, what a wonderful story that, you know, at last after, you know, people have aspired to build, you know, electric vehicles, that now they are being built and powered by Livian batteries. and. And they are the most exciting cars you can drive. It's fantastic. And I'm really enthusiastic about that as well. And how, in our small way, we can contribute to that transition. And, you know, that's what keeps me up at night, but gets me going in the morning as well. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Greg, really appreciate your time in showing your um, experience and your wisdom, especially in, obviously, the uranium space, um, and telling us a little bit more about mm. what Agura uh, are up to. So, um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, just wanted how they can go about doing that. Are you across any social media platforms? As I mentioned, you're going to be at the Minds and Money event at the end of November, which is 2022. Um, so obviously yep. people can um, arrange to uh, catch up with you then. Yeah, look, we're at the normal info at uh, auroraenergymetals.com. Uh, if people want to reach out to me directly, um, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, we're on Twitter feed as well as 1AE and Aurora. Um, yeah, so looking forward to Minds and Money. And then I actually recently won the pitch battle of the online version of Minds and Money. So that was pretty cool that, that Aurora, you know, beat out a couple of competitors um, with different offerings. Um, people recognized, you know, the, 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 the potential of the project um, and the location we're in and the industries that we're in as well. So that was 
nice encouragement from an independent panel of investors as well. Uh, hope to maybe do the same when I'm in London as well, because we'll be participating in the pitch battle at Minds and Money too. Yeah, no, and it'd be good, good to catch up there as well. And obviously, our listeners, our listeners, no doubt, will be uh, uh, attending. So um, obviously, feel free to reach out to Greg um, and meet up with him. And if you've obviously got any questions in the meantime, feel free to reach out to him. Uh, the um, information will be in the show notes accompanying this podcast. So, um, Greg, really appreciate your time. Um, and listeners, hope you uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, there's some education, obviously, around the uranium space here. Greg is obviously an expert in the industry, having worked for some of um, some of the, the the bigger companies out there, and, and worked on some of the uh, the po- various deposits around the world. So, um, Greg is obviously has a wealth of information and knowledge around the uranium space. So, please take advantage of uh, reaching out to him if you have any questions. So, until next time. Happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.